that in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is wisdom made flesh. So in Matthew's Gospel, if to align yourself with wisdom is to align yourself with life, so if Jesus is wisdom, then to align yourself with Jesus is to align yourself with life, and to align yourself with Jesus and life is to align yourself with resurrection. Welcome back to the Center for Spiritual Renewal podcast and our five-part series entitled Four Gospels, Many Resurrections. Today, Dr. Harry Meyer of the Vancouver School of Theology guides us through the Gospel of Matthew. Here we are encouraged to pick up the yoke of wisdom and walk the way of resurrection with Jesus of Nazareth. Please enjoy and be encouraged by this message of new life. Welcome back. Last week we talked about the Gospel of Mark, and this week we're going to talk about the Gospel of Matthew for newcomers, and next week we'll talk about Luke, and then we'll talk about the Gospel of John. Just to remind people that the title of the talks are Four Gospels, Many Resurrections, and to remind you that, and for the newcomers who haven't heard this, that when we're talking about the four Gospels and the many resurrections, we're recognizing that there are many resurrection stories in the Gospels. But the other meaning of the term many resurrections is to affirm that when we speak of Jesus' resurrection as Christians, we're talking about the life of the raised Jesus in our midst now. And so we're not talking about an event a long time ago in a place far, far away, we're rather talking about, as Christians, a living reality, so that when we speak of many resurrections, we're talking about the way that we live the resurrection, how the resurrection comes to animate us, how the resurrection comes to call us to be disciples. And God comes to each of us specific to our own particular biography and specific to our own life situation and needs. So there are as many resurrections as there are you and I. And there are as many resurrections as there are creatures, I was saying last week, because in 1 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away, the new has come. And that the, that new things means not just us, but the entire cosmos is, is renewed. So we are called then by Easter into a living dynamic reality that comes to each of us specific to the particular narratives, autobiographies, challenges, where we find ourselves. So this means then that when we're looking at these gospel stories, we're asking the question, how is how are these gospel stories talking about the resurrection that comes for me, the resurrection that invites me into newness of life? And then, of course, we're communities that call us in as communities of faith into resurrection life. Now, you may be wondering why we started with the gospel of Mark and are now moving to the Gospel of Matthew. Well, the reason why that is, is because Mark is the first gospel that was written that we have in the New Testament. And Matthew and Luke definitely copied from Mark. In other words, whoever wrote Matthew and Luke, they had Mark's gospel in front of them, and they copied from Mark word for word in many places, though they changed Mark in ways that tailored Mark's story to their own needs and their own desires. And sometimes they actually wrote their gospels very much to oppose what they found in Mark's gospel. So I'm going to demonstrate this in, in just a moment. So here, our talk this evening is called Emmanuel, which is Jesus' name in Matthew's gospels. We'll see in a little bit. God with us. And this is a wood cutting called Christ of the Breadlines, where you have 
Jesus, who is in a line of people who are waiting to be fed bread, uh, people who are poor and who are in the bread line. And we're going to return to this image later on. So what I have here is uh, we have Mark's gospel on the left and Matthew's gospel on the right, as well as below. So Mark's gospel is the bit that's in red, which we read last week. And if you remember last week, um, we were saying that Mark's gospel ends at verse 8, or the oldest version of Mark's gospel that we have. We actually don't know exactly how Mark's gospel ended, because it ends very odd, but the gospel that we have, the oldest version we have, does end at verse 8 with, so they went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And last week, then, we talked about the, the resurrection story, then, as been in, being an instruction to go back to Galilee, verse 7, go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. And that if we then go back to the start of the gospel and read the entirety of Mark's gospel in the light of Easter, then we can see that the entirety of Mark's story of Jesus is actually one long Easter proclamation. If we want to know what Easter life looks like, then we follow Jesus on the way of discipleship. So that's Mark's Easter story. But if we come now to Matthew's Easter story, uh, this is in the uh, hot pink and then the blue underneath. And we can see that, and I'm going to show this more in the next slide, that Matthew has taken Mark and reworked Mark. So I'm just going to read Matthew's version. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the sepulcher, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead people. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Lo, I have told you. So they parted quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Notice that, right? In Mark, they went away and with fear and trembling, and they told no one for anything before they were afraid. But here, right, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Hail. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And they, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. So what you can see here is that unlike Mark, where the women uh, run away and don't tell anyone, the women run to the disciples to tell them, and on the way they meet Jesus. And then we have Jesus appearing to the 11 disciples at Galilee on a mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So if we look at the next slide here, what this next slide does is it basically uh, places the things that Matthew has largely taken from Mark, often word for word, and then also added material. So the things that are in block print are parallel text. So we find that both in Mark and in Matthew. The bits that are in blue are bits that Matthew has added to his resurrection story. So we can, I'm not going to look at this in a lot of detail, but this is as much as to say simply that it is obvious that Matthew has used Mark's resurrection story and has 
slightly adapted it for Matthew's own ends, right? Uh, we see that there are sufficient coincidences of terms, phrases, the order of things that are being described to suggest to us that the best explanation for that is that Matthew has been copying from the Gospel of Mark. However, Matthew, if you look at the blueprint, you can see that Matthew has also added things. So rather than the women asking who's going to roll away the stone and just discovering the stone had been rolled away, right? In Matthew's gospel, we have in verse two in the blue, and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. So that then helps us to understand how the stone got rolled away and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning and his raiment was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards, we're going to talk about the guards in just a moment, the guards trembled and became like dead people. There are no guards in Mark's gospel, right? And there is a young man that the women meet in Mark's gospel, but in Matthew's gospel, they meet an angel. And the angel, as opposed to Mark chapter uh, 16, verse 5, as opposed to seeing a young man dressed in a white robe, right, they see an angel, right, and the angel then says, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here. And basically what the angel says is exactly what the young man said, roughly in the same words. And then the instruction to go and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead and he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Lo, I have told you in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, there you will see him, the young man says, just as he told you. So now the gospel, just as I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and I have the Greek there, and ran to tell his disciples. In uh, Mark, we have, they ran, they went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement right? Different words. And they said nothing to anyone. These women go and tell his disciples. And then Jesus uh, meets them and says, hail. And then they worship him. And then he says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me, which is what in Matthew chapter 16, verse 7, parallel, go tell his disciples and Peter, there you will see him. There they will see me. So we've got identical words here. And then in Matthew 28, 16 to 20, the 11 disciples, because of course Judas has committed suicide, go to Galilee and they go to a mountain. And then Jesus gives them what we know as the Great Commission. Uh, go and baptize, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the triune name and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And then we have Emmanuel, lo, I am with you to the close of the age. And this phrase, I am with you, is the phrase that we're going to be looking at in uh, greater uh, detail. So what I've done here now is I have now, um, we have the Matthew's resurrection story again, uh, but we're backing up a little bit. And the black print that you have there are things that Matthew has added that refer to arguments with Jewish opponents, which is very important in Matthew, and I'll be talking about this in a little bit. So only in Matthew's gospel do we have the uh, reference to on the day that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember what that imposter said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise again. Therefore, command the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may go and steal him away and tell the people he has been raised from the dead. And the last deception would be worse than the first. Pilate said to him, you have a guard of soldiers. Go 
make it as secure as you can. So they went with the guard and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone. And then this then is when we have the uh, guards who are trembling at the tomb. And we look at the left column there, Mark 28, verse 3. So the angel appears and then for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead people. Then we have the reference to the guards appearing again in Matthew 28, verse 11. When they were going, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. And the priests had assembled with the elders. They devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, you must say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story is still told among the Jews to this day. So one of, as I'm going to talk about in just a moment, one of the things to know about Matthew's gospel is that Matthew has a very sharp polemic or critical language against Jews. These stories do not appear, this reference to the guards and so on, does not appear in any of the other Gospels. There's no sort of conspiracy reported of the Jews saying that they stole Jesus' body, etc., etc., etc. This is only in Matthew's Gospel. And I think that this is part of the story that Matthew wants to tell about Jesus that Jesus is very much in a sharp conflict with Jewish opponents. This is something that we're going to be uh, talking about in a little bit fuller detail. So you can see that Matthew has significantly changed Mark's gospel resurrection story. Firstly, there's a resurrection appearance. Namely, the disciples do go to Galilee, the women do see Jesus, the women do tell the disciples, and the disciples go to Galilee and they see Jesus. And then we have this whole counterpoint in the black print of the Jewish authorities concocting this story about the disciples stealing the body of Jesus. So what can we uh, say about uh, Matthew's gospel? I want to then just present some brief historical backdrop of Matthew's gospel. Uh, so the first thing is that Matthew was probably written somewhere between 70 to 85 CE. So Mark's gospel is usually dated till around 70. So since Matthew is copying for Mark, that means Matthew has to be after Mark. So sometime between 70 and 85. Uh, Matthew copied for Mark's gospel, often word for word. Uh, Matthew is written in a context of great conflict between Jews who were followers of Jesus and Jews who weren't. Right. So when Matthew is writing his gospel, there's no such thing as Christians, right? The whole idea of Christianity as a Roman religion or as an empire-wide religion and so on, this really emerged over several centuries. In the first century, people who were Jesus' followers were still very much self-understanding themselves as belonging to the people of Israel. So when we're talking about a conflict between Jews, we're not talking about Christians versus Jews. We're rather talking about Jews who are followers of Jesus and Jews who are not followers of Jesus. And they're basically hurling stones at each other. Matthew is the most Jewish gospel in the New Testament, but is also most critical of Jews, namely Jews who don't agree that Jesus is the Messiah, right? So here we should imagine synagogues on opposite side of the street. In one synagogue, there are Jews who are uh, following followers of Jesus. And on the other side of the street, there are Jews of the synagogue who are not followers of Jesus, and they're casting stones at each other 
across the street. And Matthew's gospel is partly written to refute the criticisms of the Jews who are in the synagogue across the street who reject the claims that they are making about Jesus. It's very, very important to know this because unfortunately Matthew's gospel has been used as a warrant for murdering Jews as people who killed Jesus and that God has revoked God's covenant with Israel and has now moved the covenant from Israel to Christianity, right? That's kind of what has happened in the history of Western Eastern Christianity, in part because we have forgotten that these gospels are themselves Jewish documents. When Matthew tells the Easter story, then he adds a polemic against Jews who deny the resurrection, right? Matthew is writing a story of or on behalf of Jews who believe the resurrection and is writing an Easter story in which he adds polemic against Jews who deny the resurrection. When we read Matthew's gospel, we must be careful to understand his treatment of non-Christ-believing Jews belongs to a local conflict, not a divine statement about how all Jews in the world are. So we know about this because both we Lutherans and we Anglicans, right, we have gone through some extraordinarily fierce debates amongst our members over the inclusion of uh, the full inclusion of LGBTQ plus people, right? And we know that the result of that has been that a group of people have told us that because we accept these things, we're not really Anglicans anymore, or we're not really Lutherans anymore, or even that we're not really Christians anymore, right? So the point that I make there is that you've got Anglicans versus Anglicans, Lutherans versus Lutherans. You don't have, uh, uh, you know, non-Anglicans versus non-Anglicans or non-Lutherans non, 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 um, versus non-Lutherans. You've got a competition over what is Anglicanism? What is Lutheranism, right? And so, but sometimes these conflicts can be extraordinarily intense. And as a consequence, people can use othering language, right? To disparage people who don't share the same point of view. And obviously we have in our living memory, extraordinarily painful divisions, people leaving our communions, starting their own communions, uh, and so on, right? Okay, so let's, with that historical background in mind, I want now to talk about Emmanuel, and I want to talk about what it means that Matthew says that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So Emmanuel literally in Hebrew means God with us with us. El is uh, God, and uh, M, uh, with and with the people, Manim, God is with us. God is with us. So Matthew says in Matthew 28, 20, Jesus has Matthew say, uh, Matthew has Jesus say in Matthew 28, 20, Lo, I am with you to the close of the age. God with us. I am with you. At the story of Jesus' birth, an angel appears to Joseph. So in Luke's gospel, we have an, the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary. In Matthew's gospel, an angel appears to Joseph and says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. This theme is then picked up in a couple of other places in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 18, 20, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus teaches, 
there I am in the midst of them, right? So there I am in the midst of them, or put this differently, there I am with them, or there he is with us, wherever two or three are gathered in my name. And then from Matthew chapter 25, which is the parable of the sheep and the goats, right? Which is the parable where at the end of the age, all the nations will stand before the judgment seat of God. And uh, they will then be judged according to whether they did things for Jesus or not. And the, the uh, goats will hear, when I was hungry, you did not feed me. When I was naked, you did not clothe me. When I was in prison, you did not visit me, right? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you naked? When did we see you in prison? As you did not do this to the least of these brethren, you did not do it to me, or as you did it to one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. So the idea here is that God is Emmanuel. God is with us, but God is with us in a hidden way. That is to say, God is with us in the midst of all of the tragedy and the suffering of the world, right? So if we want to meet God with us, then we must ask, where do we have to be in order to meet the God who is with us? And from the parable of the sheep and the goats, clearly, in order to meet God with us means to be with those who are at the margins. That's what that means. Okay, so I want us to back up a little bit now with this God with us language uh, in mind and to now introduce us to aspects of Hebrew Bible and Jewish literature called wisdom literature. And I'm going to give you a sort of an overview of wisdom literature in the Hebrew Bible and in other Jewish writings, because what I want to show is that Jesus is the embodiment of divine wisdom in the world. Jesus is the embodiment of divine wisdom in the world. And so I'm going to unpack what that means uh, in the next uh, few minutes. So when we're talking about Jesus as wisdom, we need to remember something about the Hebrew scriptures. So the Hebrew scriptures are divided up into three portions, the law or the Torah, the prophets, or the Hebrew word is the Navi'im, right? And then the writings, the Ketuim. So sometimes these writings are called wisdom literature. And this wisdom literature appears in, in several books of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, as well as in the Apocrypha or intertestamental literature. Those of you who are Anglicans will be well acquainted with the Apocrypha because it's part of the Anglican Bible, because you have uh, shared the canon with the Roman Catholic Church, whereas Lutherans don't have the Apocrypha as part of their Bible, or they don't use the Apocrypha. So the books of wisdom writings that we find in the Bible are the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs, the book of Job, and the book of Ecclesiastes. And you have, I've given you the dates of those. And then in the Apocrypha, or writings that were written sometime between the third century BCE up until actually into the second century CE, we have a couple of other writings that we understand also as wisdom literature. One book is called Sirach. It's also named Ecclesiasticus. And the other one is called The Wisdom of Solomon. And what we're interested in talking about tonight is talking about Proverbs, as well as Sirach 
and the uh, wisdom of Solomon. Okay, so first I'm going to talk about Proverbs, and then I'm going to talk about Sirach, and then the uh, wisdom of uh, Solomon. And these texts will be sent to you as part of a PowerPoint, so uh, you don't have to write these things down furiously. Um, I hope that you'll be able to just follow along with, with, with what I'm saying right now. So what is, what is interested, what are we interested in in looking at these wisdom texts? Well, we're interested in looking at these wisdom texts because these wisdom texts talk about a figure named wisdom. And wisdom is represented or personified as a figure alongside God, first at the creation of the world, and then at God's side in the continuing creation of the world. So in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 1, for example, we have the writer saying, does not wisdom call does not understanding raise her voice. So wisdom is a female character because the Hebrew word for wisdom is hokma, which is a feminine noun. In Greek, the name is Sophia, which is also a feminine noun. Hokma, Sophia. Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way in the path, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries out, to you, O people, sorry for the um, um, non-inclusive language here, to you, O people, I call, and my cry is to humanity. So sons of men literally means humanity. My cry is to humankind. So here we have uh, the idea of wisdom is a character who stands at the gates of the town and on the paths of life and cries out, I call, my cry is to you, O humans. And what follows then are verses that I'm not going to read, but basically what follows are that she wants to teach people wisdom. She wants to teach people how to live wisely, how to live with justice and so on. And then in verse 23, she says, ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth before, God made the earth with his fields or the first of the dust of the world. Then God established the when God established the heavens, I was there. When God drew a circle on the face of the deep, when God made firm the skies above, when God established the fountains of the deep, when God assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might transgress God's command, when God marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside God, like a master work person. I was daily God's delight, rejoicing before God always, rejoicing in God's inhabited world and delighting in humankind. And now, O oh humans, listen to me. Happy are those who keep my ways. Hear my instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Happy is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors, for those who find me find life and obtain favor from the Lord, but those who miss me injure themselves. All who hate me love death. You see, so what this is telling us is that wisdom was at God's side when God created the heavens and the earth. And that because wisdom was at God's side, structuring and continuing to structure all of creation, therefore we can learn from creation by watching the world around us. What is wisdom? What is justice? What is injustice? What is the way of life? And what is the way of death? Right? So, Happy are those who listen to me. 
watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors, right? So happy are those who seek wisdom. So the important point that I'm trying to make here is that wisdom is then seen as a divine power of God that keeps all of creation as it is in the beauty that it is, and that the task of humans and the, the uh, promise of a good life is to align ourselves as closely as possible to wisdom. So this is going to be very, very important because I hope to show that in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is wisdom made flesh. So in Matthew's gospel, if to align yourself with wisdom is to align yourself with life, so if Jesus is wisdom, then to align yourself with Jesus is to align yourself with life. And to align yourself with Jesus and life is to align yourself with resurrection. So moving on then to some other texts, uh, now from the writing of Sirach, chapter 24. I'm not going to look at this text closely in the interest of time, but all of this is to say that in Sirach, uh, Wisdom, in verses 7 to 11, says that she looked for a resting place. So wisdom is on all the earth, but wisdom looks for a special place to call home. And where wisdom decides to call home is amongst Israel, and especially in the temple on Mount Zion. So we can see this Verse 9, before the ages in the beginning, God created me, and for all the ages I shall not cease to be. In the holy tent, I ministered before God, and so I was established in Zion. So here we have the tent of meeting, for those of you who know your Hebrew Bible, right, where the glory of the Lord fills the temple. Thus, in the beloved city, God gave me a resting place, and in Jerusalem was my domain. Well. It's not only in the temple, though, that wisdom finds a home. It is rather among certain kinds of people that wisdom finds a home. And by saying that it is in certain kinds of people that wisdom finds a home, now we're beginning to move towards what we might say about Jesus of Nazareth as a home where wisdom dwelt. So we have this beautiful text from Sirach chapter 24. And this is now talking about the wisdom of God. Again, this aspect of God that is personified as a female character. So we're dealing very much here with anthropomorphic language to talk about the transcendence of God. And we're talking about, we're using anthropomorphic uh, language to speak of this aspect of God as holy wisdom. Again, we remember that the word for wisdom is the feminine noun hakma in Hebrew and the feminine noun sophia, wisdom in Greek. There is in her, namely wisdom, a spirit that is intelligent, holy, unique, manifold, subtle, mobile, clear, unpolluted, distinct, invulnerable, loving the good, keen, irresistible, beneficent, humane, steadfast, sure, free from anxiety, all-powerful, overseeing all and penetrating through all spirits that are intelligent, pure, and altogether subtle. Now, notice that penetrating through all spirits. In other words, wisdom is everywhere, right? Where Wherever there is goodness in this world, wherever there is justice in this world, there is God. There is wisdom. For wisdom is more mobile than any motion. Because of her pureness, she pervades and penetrates all things, right? 
She pervades and penetrates you and me. She, she pervades and penetrates the computer in front of me, the glass of water in front of me, right? My dog, my cat, well, maybe not my cat, but my dog, everything around me, wisdom is pervading and penetrating all things. For she is a breath of the power of God and a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. Therefore, nothing defiled gains entrance into her, for she is a reflection of the eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God and an image of God's goodness, right? This is powerfully affirmative of the importance of this world as the place where we meet God. Although she is but one, she can do all things, and while remaining in herself, she renews all things. In every generation, she passes into holy souls and makes them friends of God and prophets. For God loves nothing so much as the person who lives with wisdom. She is more beautiful than the sun and excels every constellation of the stars. Compared with the light, she is found to be superior, for it is succeeded by the night. But against wisdom, evil does not prevail. Now, when Matthew wrote Matthew's gospel, I am one million percent certain that he knew this passage. And he used this passage to help craft his entire story about Jesus. Because in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is a child of wisdom. Jesus is wisdom. We can say of Jesus, according to Matthew, that it is in the generation of Jesus that she passed into Jesus' soul and made Jesus a friend of God. And that is partly because Jesus was somebody who lived with wisdom. Then we have Sirach in uh, chapter 51 uh, saying, and you'll notice here, the strong parallel with Matthew. This is why I think that Matthew knew Sirach. Wisdom says, wisdom says in Sirach 51, draw near to me wisdom, you who are uneducated, and lodge in the house of instruction. Why do you say you're lacking in these things? Why do you endure such great thirst? I opened my mouth and said, acquire wisdom for yourselves without money. Put your neck under her or under my wisdom's yoke and let your souls receive instruction. It is to be found close by. See with your own eyes that have labored but little and found for myself such serenity. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 11? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Right? The point here is that I think Matthew is a good student of Sirach, and has now cast Jesus as wisdom instructing people to put the yoke of his wise teaching upon you and to learn from you. Even as wisdom says, put your neck under my wisdom's yoke and learn and let your souls receive my instruction. Matthew is speaking the words of having Jesus speak the words of wisdom incarnate. Okay, Professor Meyer, that's very interesting, but what does all this have to do with Matthew, Emmanuel, and the resurrection? It has everything to do with Matthew, Emmanuel, and the resurrection, and more importantly, it has everything to do with you and me and this world. Matthew's gospel is a story about wisdom made flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. 
For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5 to 7, the sermon ends. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, Jesus, and acts on them will be like a wise person who built their house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act of them will be, wait for it, they will be like foolish people who built their house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Right. Matthew chapters 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with uh, blessed are the poor, uh, uh, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, etc., cetera, etc., cetera has the saying about turning the other cheek, uh, has the saying about um, not worrying for tomorrow, letting tomorrow worry for itself, reminding us of the splendor of the, of, of, of the flowers of the field that God has uh, adorned with majesty far greater than even Solomon had, not to worry even as the sparrows don't worry, that God has every hair of our head counted, and all of those things, all of that is Jesus' sermon of wisdom. This is what it means to build your house on a rock of wisdom. In Matthew chapter 11, um, Jesus says, John the Baptist comes neither eating or drinking, and you say he has a demon. And the Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds, right? Jesus is wisdom in action. Matthew 12, 42. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with his generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the world the ends of the earth, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here, right? She came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, I am wisdom, and I am greater than Solomon's wisdom. In Matthew 13, uh, Jesus comes to his own country, and he teaches in the synagogue, and the people are astonished and say, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Now, the word here is works. If you look up at Matthew eleven nineteen, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. We might say the other translation here would be that yet wisdom is justified by her works. Okay. On, so. Matthew's gospel is a story about wisdom made flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. To speak of Emmanuel, God with us unto the end of the age, is to speak of the wisdom of God living amongst us as the raised Jesus who is with us wherever we gather in Jesus' name. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is a teacher and his followers are disciples. The Greek word for disciple is mathetai, which means students. And they are understanding disciples. In other words, they get Jesus' instruction, unlike in Mark, where the disciples can't never understand what Jesus is teaching. So Jesus is called a teacher in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And but the vast majority of times in the New Testament where Jesus is called a teacher appears in Matthew's gospel. The followers of Jesus are called disciples in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the vast number of times, the majority of times where the followers of Jesus are called disciples, pupils, is in 
Matthew's gospel. There is a theme here, right, that Jesus as incarnate wisdom is a teacher, and those who are following on the way of Jesus' wisdom are his students. Okay. So here I want to, uh, us to look at the structure of Matthew's gospel in the last uh, few moments that we have with each other. And then I'm going to bring it all home to you. So the line here, you can see Matthew chapter one on the left, and then we have uh, 28 on the right. This is then the uh, beginning and the end of Matthew's gospel. You can see here that there are these pyramids. And what these pyramids signify is that what Matthew does in his gospel is he divides Jesus' teaching into five large speeches, five large speeches. And I've got these five speeches listed here, chapters 5 to 7, chapter 10, chapter 13, chapter 18, chapters 23 to 25, and chapter 20. And then uh, the, the, those are the five, uh, the, the, the five sections of, of teaching. So it is natural that if Jesus is embodied wisdom, who is instructing the way that wisdom says she instructs in the Hebrew scriptures, that we should see Jesus stopping to teach his disciples repeatedly. And what Matthew does for us is he has Jesus going along, and then he stops and he gives these long speeches of wisdom, right? So, and importantly, there are three places where this happens on a mountain, right? At the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7, at the Mount of Olives, after Jesus' triumphal entry, where Jesus teaches in four parables. And then finally, there's a mountain at the very end of the gospel, where Jesus has met the disciples on a mountain in Galilee, and he commands the disciples, go into the world, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching the nations to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. So in other words, the disciples who are living the resurrection life, God with us, are continuing to teach Jesus' words of wisdom in the world. And as they do this, they do this in the full knowledge that God is with us, or that the raised Jesus is with us even unto the close of the age. So Matthew's gospel then does double duty even as the gospel of Mark did double duty. The story on one level is a story of Jesus, you know, teaching as a historical character. But the story on another level is emblazoned what resurrection is in the world. Resurrection in the world looks like living these instructions that Jesus gives. So again, the gospel is not just something, a life about Jesus. The gospel of Matthew is the embodiment in print of resurrection life. Matthew has arranged his gospel into five large blocks of teaching to drive the motif of Jesus as teacher home. Matthew's gospel is the teaching of Jesus. Matthew's gospel is the sign that Emmanuel is here, God with us, 
teaching us how to be disciples. Is the resurrection then, of course, I'm a professor, so yes, of course, I'd ask this question. Is the resurrection then about learning how to be a disciple or how to be a student? Yes, but it isn't head knowledge. It is to learn to be a disciple in the midst of life, in the midst of the travail of the world, we learn to recognize as Jesus and the God who is with us. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. To say that God is with us is to make a fundamental wager with our lives that it is in giving ourselves away to the suffering of the world that we will know God with us. That this apparently foolish way is the way of wisdom. And the way that passes as the wisdom of this age, which is to get more and more, to get power, to get esteem and privilege, is the way of foolishness and is a way where God is absent. In the last words of Matthew's gospel, the Easter Jesus promises to be Emmanuel, God with us. The medieval mystical theologian Meister Eckhart observed, a person may go far away or near, but God is never far off. God is always standing at hand. And even if God cannot stay within, God goes no further than the door. Again, he said, Meister Eckhart, God is at home. It's we who have gone out for a walk. Matthew's Easter Jesus comes to us to teach us where home is. Emmanuel instructs us that God is with us and irresistibly for us. Matthew's way of resurrection teaches us to find our Easter home amidst the world's suffering and travail. As you have done it to the least of these, you have done it to me, Jesus promises in Matthew's parable of the sheep and the goats. It is amidst this world's challenges that Matthew's Easter Jesus invites us to learn his way of wisdom and become his pupil, the Greek word we translated as disciple means student. He calls us to cast off the heavy yokes that weigh us down, to cease from plowing the hard and stony ground where thorns and thistles grow. He invites us to put on the yoke of his teaching, to learn to plow with him the rich soil of God's mercy and love and the Easter way of justice and reconciliation. So, Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel, right? Very different from Mark, entirely different from Mark, and invites us to recognize resurrection. Again, we can say on the way of Galilee, right? We encounter wisdom. What does wisdom look like on the way of Galilee, right? So resurrection then means that this world is charged with resurrection. This world is charged with resurrection because God is in the business of animating this world with abundance and with fullness of life. If we ask the question, what does it mean to be children of resurrection in this world? It means always and everywhere to seek what is the way of wisdom? What is the way of abundance of life? And Matthew's gospel wants to invite you on a way that says wisdom is found in what most of the world regards as foolishness. Wisdom is found in the way of the giving of self for the sake 
of love. That is where resurrection is in the world, wherever there is wisdom, wherever there is, not only in the church, but everywhere, right? There is resurrection. Resurrection is unstoppable. The question is, are we wearing the yoke of wisdom and resurrection, or are we seeking to place on ourselves another heavy, burdensome yoke? I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Next time, Dr. Meyer will take us on a journey through the gospel according to Luke, where resurrection always comes with food. The peace of God be with you all.